And today, I wanted to do a little bit of an exegetical study through a small portion in the Scriptures of Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Nehemiah chapter 8. And I would like for us to look at an awakening, a spiritual awakening. And it's so important for us to define what a spiritual awakening looks like and where it comes from. Why? Because the word, the world, excuse me, talks very often about being spiritual when it has nothing to do with being godly and scriptural. Can I get an amen, please? We hear people talk about being spiritual all the time without ever uh, referring to scripture at all. They're just spiritual because they are one with the universe. They are spiritual because Oprah told them they were. They're spiritual <laughs> because of all these different reasons when in fact it is impossible to be spiritual without also being scriptural. That is how you are spiritual. If you are worshiping a Jesus that is not found in scriptures, your Jesus is not the real one. <laughs> Remember, he said, in the last days, there will be many fake Christs. There will be many false Christs. And if your Jesus is not the one of scriptures, he is not the authentic Jesus. You are worshiping a false God. And too many Christians are finding Jesus by walking through or finding God's will by walking through the forests and, and just waiting to have an experience. No, no. Uh, your experiences in scriptures. You see, the more I get to know my wife after 47 years of life and only a handful of years of marriage, the, <laughs> the more I get to know my wife, the more I get to love her. You cannot love outside of knowledge. You do not love the person you have no knowledge of. Because if you don't even know that they exist, how could you love somebody that doesn't exist? You only love what you know. And you, you love God because you get to know Him. How do you get to know who God is? The Bible, the Scriptures. When you dive into the Scriptures and you start seeing His glory, His majesty, when, you, when, it start, it's, when it's revealed to you just how great He is, you can't but praise Him. When, you, when it's revealed to you how good He is, you can't help but thank Him. When it's revealed to you how holy He is, you can't help but worship Him. Because we praise Him since He is great and we know how great He is and we thank Him because we recognize His goodness and we worship Him because we identify His holiness. So it's a natural response to praise, worship, and to give thanks. It's a natural response from what we know about God. In the same way, loving Him is natural. Loving Him is your natural response after getting to know Him. And the world struggles to love God. Why? Because they don't know God. It's no use going to church and just feeling better about your possible future without also getting to know who God is. He's righteous. He's holy. He's just. He's, he's almighty. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. There's no... You know, somebody said to me the other day, at work, they go like, hey, so uh, where did God come from, huh? Yeah, got you. Where did God come from? I'm like, what did you say you got me? I said, eternity. What do you think of when I say eternity? He says, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But you are thinking future, aren't you? He says, yeah, from now until eternity. I said, how about from now until eternity past? 
if you can fit God into your eight-pound brain, you need to find another God. He's too small. <laughs> if your brain can fathom the one who created the brain. <laughs> so there's this thing about Christianity called the mystery of Christianity. I mean, you know, the mystery of Christianity is it's a, it's a phenomenal thing. And it's why we will still get to know God when we go to heaven one day. We will learn more and more and more and never stop learning. So I'd like for us to look at what an awakening, a spiritual awakening looks like. And an awakening that was not designed by man, but awakening, a spiritual awakening that's brought to us by God. An awakening that was not orchestrated by men sitting down and discussing marketing strategies. Uh, or momentum-creating events, you know, like, all right, let's, let's, let's fill these seats, you know, let's build this church, let's get multiple camps, let's, let's, you know. But that's one, there's one way of doing that, you know, through strategies and events and so forth. But what about an awakening that comes from God, a spiritual awakening? An awakening that actually impacts the people of God in a spiritual way and not just in an emotional or relational way. So let's look at the awakening that took place under the, under the preaching of Ezra, the priest. This is found in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to read through the whole entire passage, and then we're going to go segment by segment, and we're going to see what God has for us today. Let's just say this, Father God, I pray you speak with me today. Show me today your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, and all the people gathered as one man. Can you say one man? one man? All the people, all of them, gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they, this is in Jerusalem. And they asked Ezra, the high priest, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Bring us the book. Bring us the book. Verse 2. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding And the first day, on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. Hmm. He read from early morning till midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were all attentive. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood all these different men, 13 in total. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Verse 6, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. He blessed God. Because God was great. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with uh, their faces to the ground. And then another 13 Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Levites were the ones who would take these very complicated spiritual thoughts and simplify it, explain it, unpack it to their natural mind so they could understand it. That's what the Levites did, and they did it right here. 
They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were doing what? They were weeping. They were crying when they heard the words of the law. They were distressed. They were broken. They were sorrowful. They were crying when the word of God was read to them. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, he's not talking about having a hard time at the office. He was saying, he was saying now that you heard the law, I know how you feel. Now, cheer up. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's almost like going for surgery. It's painful, but it's necessary, right? I remember walking down a store and a guy, I don't know how old he was. He was in his 70s. He says, he says I forget how, how, how many. He says, I got five more years. I got five more years. I'm thinking, five more years? I said, five more years of what? He says, the doctor just told me I have five more years. Praise God, he said. And I, I kid you not, I helped him to where he wanted to go, and I started crying. I think, God, how ungrateful we are for what we do have. Sometimes going through pain makes you grateful for what you have left over. And sometimes, you know, when you go and that scalpel that the, that the surgeon uses, he actually has to hurt you to heal you. Got it? And so the same thing comes and the gospel comes to you and the law of God comes and he says, you're dead. You've got a heart of stone. Now, here's God's love toward you. He breathes life back into you so that you can live for him. Yeah, but I had all these purposes for my own life. No. He actually, actually by the way, you had no life. Okay, let's start there. Okay, <laughs> you were going absolutely nowhere, and then when you arrived there, all you were going to receive was, the, was the, the, the fury of God. That's all. It's hell. Now, now that God brought you back to life, how about live for Him? Yeah? Can we do this now? Well, if we understood where we came from and what He did for us and where He's bringing us to, there would be no possible way you would want to do anything other than live for Him and glorify Him with your entire life. This becomes my purpose. Now I can live for God, no problem. But if I have been, if my heart's been darkened, my eyes have gone blind, and my ears have gone deaf, I can't hear goodness when I hear, now live for me. I can't hear it. You've got, you got five more years to live. I don't want five years, I want more. <laughs> you know, but if you knew that you were dying, and if you knew that you were dead, Five years sound good, right? If, if you knew that all you were, all that was waiting for you was eternity in hell, now suddenly living for His glory alone sounds really good, right? So anybody that does not want God's purposes or God's plan for their lives but has another one for themselves, is only because they are deceived. That's the only reason they're blind and deaf and their heart's unresponsive.
So, where were we? Verse 11. Bible says, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, these were the leaders, calmed all the people from wailing and crying of all their sorrow. And he said, they said, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Take off your sandals, Moses. The day has arrived. This is a holy day. And there's a reason for it. In all the mighty movements of the Spirit of God throughout all of time, we see the Word of God is proclaimed. It's the Word of God that was proclaimed. Remember, they built this, they built in this portion that we just saw, this wooden stage for Ezra to stand on, and they said to him, bring us the book, read us the Word of God. We need it. He got up there, he started reading and reading from morning until noon, and they started weeping when they heard what? The Word of God. All right? And I'm saying to you today that if you look throughout the history of all the movements of God throughout all of time, you will see the Word of God was proclaimed and then the movement took place. The people's hearts were cut to the core after, after, after the Word was preached to them. Throughout redemptive history, every great awakening has always been accompanied by deep conviction first. Conviction of what? Sin. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin and righteousness. Your sin has been, the sin that has long been suppressed at that time suddenly becomes exposed to the individual. They hear the word and they go, oh, I have need of a Savior. You hear the word and you go like, well, that wasn't nice. <laughs> you know, I have a need of a Savior. Every single awakening throughout history, you can go and study history yourself. Sins that have long been suppressed are suddenly exposed to the individual. Consciences that have been silenced by themselves, they attempt to sear their own consciences, constantly silencing their conscience, are suddenly alive and pricked. And they go like, why am I so bothered by this? I know I should serve God more than what I already am. I know I should be more compassionate than what I already am. I know I should walk away from the things, more things than what I already have. I know I, 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 know I should pray more than I already am. I know I should study the Word more than I already am. And this is a sign of, a, of some, somebody that's alive. Have you noticed that every single thing God has ever created that's alive is still growing? Everything. There's nothing God has created that is alive that's not growing. And that includes you, Christian disciple. That includes you and me. Throughout redemptive history, every great awakening has always been accompanied by deep conviction of sin. Conviction of sin becomes intolerable to that person at that moment. A heaviness of heart settles upon the people like they did right there in front of Ezra. And in that heart-wrenching experience, they go like, God, I need to make right with you. God, I confess. God, I turn. God, I need Jesus. Suddenly I realize I'm not all that good and I really do need a Savior. And suddenly at that moment, forgiveness becomes evident. And then there's joy unspeakable and so full of glory. There is no soft or easy awakening 
There is no such thing as a soft or easy spiritual awakening. Why is this? Because an awakening is an awareness of the holiness of God. That's all it is. A spiritual awakening is having the scales fall off your eyes and you look at a God that is 100% completely holy. And that's what happens in heaven because they see God in heaven. That's why all the angels are flying around the throne shouting what? Holy, holy, holy. You see, when you see God, guess what else happens? Suddenly, you recognize yourself. You go like, God is so holy. I guess I'm not all that holy. <laughs> God is so perfect. And suddenly I recognize and realize my imperfections. This is what happens throughout all of history in every single great spiritual awakening. And it happened in front of Ezra that day. It is when a person recognizes the holiness of God that he also sees how far short he has fallen from the very glory of God. Now that sentence, that scripture makes sense. And when that scripture makes sense and he realizes how far he has fallen short from the glory of God is when man suddenly recognizes his great need for a saving Jesus. Now Jesus becomes beautiful. Now the grace of God is amazing. And now God's goodness is real. When I see how much I needed you and I see how willing you are to bridge that gap from where I am to where you are, now suddenly Jesus becomes necessary, needed, and a Savior becomes championed. The grace of God becomes amazing. And now I'm humbled. Now I'm grateful. Now I'm compassionate. Now, now I can care for others because I see how much I've been cared for. Now I can be good to others because I can see this goodness that's been given me. When a great awakening comes, Sin that has long been tolerated, excused, ignored, and denied is suddenly brought to the surface. I can no longer deny it. I can no longer ignore it or turn a blind eye to it. Suddenly, it's front and center. I need a Savior other than myself. When a great awakening comes, a sudden deep desire to be clean before God rises up in a person's heart. You've had that happen to you? God. I don't know why yesterday this didn't bother. Today I just want to be right with you. How many of you can tell me that this has happened to you by a show of hands? Suddenly, God, I need to be right. What must I do? What must I do? That's why throughout scriptures you'll find that altar calls were given the other way around. People always asked, what must I do to have eternal life? The preacher didn't tell them, hey, listen, what you need to do to have eternal life is. They were saying, no, 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 you, no I, want, I want to ask you the question. You tell me what must I do? He goes, well, you've got to get baptized too. He says, well, there's water right there. Let me bap- Can you baptize me in that water? Right? When people, when there's a spiritual awakening, people become desperate for God. just like they were right here in front of Ezra. A sudden deep desire to be clean before God 
rises in their heart. Just like perfume rises after the perfume jar has broken. So also a sudden desire for God himself arises from the person who has been cut to the heart. A person who's been broken. Whose hardened heart has been broken up. You see, this is what happens when people experience a spiritual awakening. And this is exactly what happened during the awakening at the Watergate, right there on the east side of Jerusalem. Those who heard the word of the Lord were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Things oftentimes bother me here. Things oftentimes just frustrate me. I'm just bothered by stuff. But then there's a moment when I'm cut to the heart. When you cut to the heart, a lot of things happen. Suddenly there's feeling. Suddenly, things that used to be trivial become weighty and serious. I used to laugh at those things. Now, I'm burdened by them. It's when I'm cut to the heart. I'm desperate. I'm desperate to know that things are right between God and I. Those who heard the word of the Lord were cut to the heart. Those who were cut to the heart received a new awareness of their sin and their need for God. Those who cut to the heart know that their weeping will ultimately be turned into joy. So as we look at look this portion that I just read to you, I want to highlight three elements <clears throat> that enables this awakening, this spiritual awakening. And if you are in search of a spiritual awakening... God has given us a blueprint. The first is the spiritual hunger of the people. Let's start with Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man. All the people gathered as one man. Commentators tell us that there were as few as 30,000 people gathering there as one man who had understanding of scriptures when it was read to them. As few as 30,000 or as many as 50,000 gathered right there at the water gate in the square on the east side of Jerusalem. They gathered there, the Bible says, as one man, meaning what? They were gathered at the water gate on the east side of Jerusalem in one place with one mind, with one purpose. Ezra! Give us the book. They were desperate to hear the words of God. Desperate for it. They didn't come for the jokes. They didn't come for the preliminaries. They didn't come for the entertainment. They didn't need music. They didn't need the lights. Give us the book. We're all here together. One place, one time. One mind, one purpose, the Word of God. You see, the time was the seventh day of the seventh month, which was equivalent of the beginning of the new year for the, in the Jewish calendar. In other words, this was, I got to start afresh. The New Year's resolution, January 1st. Man, those gyms are packed out. January 5th, 50% capacity. February Where's everybody? <laughs> As I drive past. I'm like, where are they? Not one car. 
ain't going there myself. You see, it was like people wanted to start their new year right with God. That's what they wanted. They wanted a new life, a new beginning, a fresh start. It was their news resolution. They said, we want the Word of God brought to us now. It was a time for the public ministry of the Word of God. These multiplied thousands of people were gathered and asked Ezra, the scribe. They specifically asked this man, Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law. Now, why did they ask Ezra, the scribe? To bring the book of the law, Ezra. Why not anybody else? Because they knew that, the, that this one man knew more of the word of God and knew God better through his word than anybody else. Ezra was the man. Why? Because 14 years earlier, Ezra had returned to the promised land from the Babylonian captivity that they were all in. And he made this commitment when he returned. You see, God brought them out of captivity uh, in Babylon, brought them back to Israel. And Ezra says this in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. He said, the book, Bible says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, to study the very word of God and to practice it and to teach his statutes, God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. That was his purpose. He said, that's it. Drawing a line in the sand, I am studying the Word of God. And hopefully, 2020 is the year you do the same. You draw the line and you say, I'm studying the Word of God. But no, not only am I studying it, I'm practicing the Word of God. And not only am I studying and practicing the Word of God, I'm going to teach it too. Because how many of you know the best way to learn is to teach? I encourage people who say, I know nothing about the Bible, but I really want to know the Bible. Join the children's ministry. I kid you not. Go and become a teacher in the children's ministry. Now, anyway. <laughs> not all of us are good at this, okay? I'm not saying I'm good at I'm saying I used to teach in the children's ministry three weeks, and then they begged me to try something else. <laughs> and and uh, I have never done that again. But all I tell you is I can see people who teach in the children's ministry. The best way to learn is to teach. They grow in leaps and bounds. So this was the commitment that Ezra had made to himself. So we, knew, so we know that Ezra had been digging into the Word of God and digging into the Word of God for 14 years, and boom, now is his occasion. They called for him. Ezra, bring the book. Of all the thousands and thousands of people, you read it to us. Because we know that you know it. I'm waiting for the day when people would start begging, Pastor, can we please cut the lengthy preliminaries and hear more teaching instead? Please, can we just, I want to hear teaching. Pastor, can we please start the service earlier and end the service later? I want to hear more teaching. We're going to end in a good time today because I haven't heard this yet. <laughs> Pastor, can we have less psychology and more doctrine for heaven's sake, please? Pastor, can we have fewer stories about your kids? Greater exegesis of scriptures instead, please. I've heard Robert's stories. Anyway, talking about Robert. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the truth is, 
People who absolutely love God, absolutely love doctrine. Have you ever met a Christian like, nah, I don't want to hear the doctrine. And like, People who absolutely love God, absolutely love doctrine. Now, if we are going to have a revival like we see happening right here in front of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, it is going to be because the people standing and seated in the crowd, they are crying out, share with us God's book. Bring us the book. We want to hear God speak We need to hear God's mind. We need to hear what God wants. We are desperate to know what God wants, what God desires, and what does He require? What does He want? What pleases Him? You see, uh, for most part, in evangelicalism, we are taught to go and search for something other than that. Tell me I'm okay. I want to hear that I'm okay. Tell me, tell me about a, is this thing, are things going to work out okay? That's all I want to know. Yes, they are. Well, who knows that they are? Doesn't Jesus say to that rich man who built extra, extra barns and everything, didn't he say, you fool, tonight I'll take your life from you. And then who's going to have everything that you laid up for yourself? I pray every day that God will protect me from the fear of man. Because that is a problem I deal with. Every day that God will protect me from the fear of man. Why? So, you too will pray that. And so we can stand in the shoes of Ezra too. And actually just teach the word. And not be a Jonah for most of our lives. But the first thing that needs to happen is that people need to be hungry. They need to have a spiritual hunger for the book. How else am I going to know God? When I know God, I can love Him more. I can't know what, I can't love what I don't know. And if I love a God whom I did not study in scriptures, I'm loving another God, not the scriptural God. Because I have found more than what I like to in myself and others. That when we actually land upon something about God we, we didn't know about maybe, we're wondering if we even love Him anymore. But we love the God we make up, not necessarily the God the Word outlines. So we have to be careful. Know God. Cry out for the book. Cry out for scriptures. Draw the line in the sand. Say, this year, I want to hear God. His will. His wants. His desires. What He requires. It's all about God because my life glorifies Him, not my own. Number two. The second element that enables an awakening is that the confrontation of the word. You see, beginning in verse two and a response to the demand, Ezra now steps forward to meet their request by delivering to them a masterful presentation of God's word. Nehemiah 8 verse 2, A says, Then Ezra the priest brought the law. He brought it. I love how people who are woke these days, they go like, man, he brought it. (laughs) Ezra brought it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Ezra prepared his entire life for this moment. And God has prepared the man for the moment, and he prepared the moment for the man. Because 14 years, Ezra has been studying the scriptures drawing from it an understanding of God's intentions, 
applying it to his own life, practicing in his own daily walk, teaching it faithfully to others all these years to the point where everybody, when they were desperate for God, they said, Ezra, where are you? Read to me. Now is the time as he steps out in front of the entire nation while they are begging to hear from him, read the word of God. In verse 3, Ezra reads them the word and we go to 3a. It says he read from it because uh, before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Wow. In the, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people were what? All the people were what? Attentive. <laughs> okay, so first, let's stop right there. Please don't imagine Ezra reading the way we read when we read in public, even the way I read it. Please don't imagine him reading it the same way. I love how Stephen Lawson says, today when people read the Word of God in public, it's like the bland leading the bland. <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. No, this is not what happened. In Hebrew, the word read, that is used right here, when it said Ezra read the word, the word read that is used here is the word Korah, which means to cry out. Korah is the word to call aloud. I mean, for heaven's sakes, there were between 30 and 50,000 people. And then they had only 13 scribes and 13 Levites who were talking to the people about what Ezra was reading. And so he was crying out. He was calling aloud. Another translation of the word red is he was roaring like a lion. That's the word picture. He was proclaiming the truth of God with all confidence and knowledge of what he was speaking about. As Ezra was doing this, we see the same word used in, jo in Jonah 3 verse 2 when Jonah cried out, In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. <laughs> this is after he, he went into the, fish, into the belly of the whale and he got puked up and then he decided to obey God. And he says, God, I'm going to do it even if you don't destroy them because I have a funny feeling you're not going to destroy them. You're going to repent. You're going to turn around. You're going to change your mind about these people because they're going to repent. And God says, did I not tell you to go and do it? All right. And he went. And he started crying out, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the same word as was used for Ezra when Ezra read the law of God. He was impassionate. Nehemiah 8 verse 3b says, and all the people were attentive. This, this struck me. All the people were attentive to the book of the law. Because today it's almost like wearing a badge to say, hey, I've got ADD, ADHD. I've got like, I'm crazy, man. Like I got everything. I can't, I can't pay attention for two minutes, man. I can't pay. Like, hey, look at that. By the way, how are you doing? <laughs> now, I'm very much like that. Grew up like that. And, and, you know, it is a problem in our society. When I grew up, they didn't see that as an actual medical condition. They just kind of like whooped you. They did. <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names. <laughs> but here it's interesting. 
Almost 50,000 people paid attention from morning till noon. Now that can be done, but can you imagine that being done while reading the law? Now let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Really? How possible is that? You see the word attentive used in the Hebrew here means turning, turning an ear. Turning a person's complete focus. Turning an ear. Okay, go, say that again. So, let, okay, well, let me get what, what did you say? That, repeat that, please. When you give complete attention, this is what it means right here. 50,000 people almost were giving complete attention for all that time while reading the law. It's an amazing thing. No entertainment needed to hold those people's attention. Now, pastors are told today that sermons need to be short. Why? Because, you know, people are busy, number one, and people have a problem with their attention spans. So what you have to do is, when you go to hermeneutics and all these things, they teach you how to have an opening, like throw out the bait with a hook in it. I got you. Okay, now let's quickly talk through this for a little bit. Okay, here comes a joke. Okay, boom. Here comes an emotional hook. Got you emotionally. Good. Right. Here comes the final call to action. Got you. Good. Sign up over here, please. <laughs> let's receive the offering, whatever it is. So they teach you all of that. So pastors are told to make this sermon short and to think through it because people have a short attention span, especially today. And I'm just wondering why a person can sit through a two-hour movie glued to the screen, but suddenly they can't pay two minutes' attention to the Word of God. You see, the truth is they don't have an attention span problem. They have a heart problem. There's no interest there. Hearts are being hardened by sin and not broken because of the realization of that very sin. Check this out. The very same... Sun, light. The very same sun that hardens clay is the very same sun that melts wax. And the Word of God comes to two people sitting right next to each other. And you get two very, very different responses from the same word being preached because it's really a heart issue. Now, Nehemiah 8 verse 5. Let's go to the next verse. Ezra Open the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, what happened? All the people stood up. All the people instinctively rose to their feet in order to show reverence and awe for the Word of God. Because why? They realized that when the Bible speaks, God speaking. When I open that Bible, I should know, God, this is you speaking. When I hear somebody teach the Word, the Word, that is God speaking today. No, I don't want to have to sit through. I want to walk through a park, and I want to imagine what I believe, I feel God might be saying. <laughs> you see? When, now, I'm not saying don't pray. I'm not saying don't hear God. I'm saying when you pick up the Word of God, there needs to be a reverence. There needs to be an awe. There needs to be attention. And there needs to be an ear that turns and a heart that softens and like wax because the Word of God is, spe God is speaking. If I, if, if I ask you who your, who your greatest influencer is in life, it could be Winston Church, anybody, I don't care, anybody in history. If they had to walk upon the stage right now, if King David had to step upon the stage right now, you'd be like, tell me anything. Tell me anything, I want to hear it. When you open up the Word of God, it's like, yeah, I don't know about that. Dispensationalism, maybe not for me. Well, in fact, the Word of God is the voice of God. It is God speaking. 
Nehemiah 8 verse 6, the next verse, A, the Bible says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. This is so good. Check this out. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. You see, Ezra, Ezra's reading of the Word of God was a coronation service. It was a coronation service. Do you know what a coronation is? It's when somebody is being coronated king. <laughs> you know, he's been made king. He's been given a throne. He's been given a crown. He's been lifted up as the king. And now he rules and he reigns. Now, here Ezra <clears throat> was reading from the word of God. And the reading of the word of God was like a coronation service where God is crowned once again. God, you are great. God, you are great. Not me, you. Where God was being exalted. Where God was magnified. Where God was glorified. Where God was made great. And that is what a spiritual awakening looks like. People can't wait to make God great. They can't wait to magnify God for who He is. As the Bible outlines Him. No matter how much people don't like it. This is our God. This is who He is. Not ashamed of Him. I worship Him. I live for Him. I glorify Him. He is my purpose. And Ezra was making God great as he was reading the Scriptures, as he was teaching. Ezra was blessing God. He was magnifying the name of God as he was reading and explaining the Word of God. Piper says, we are to be exaltational expositors. In other words, when the Word of God is taught, guess what? It's for God to be made great. It's not to be a psychological session. It's for God to be made great. It's not so that I can experience greater happiness. It's for God to be made great. And when He is great in my life, all those things happen. I'm not, I'm not against people being healthy. I'm against... I'm against people getting healthy the wrong way because that's not true health. It's when God is great, everything else comes in line. It's like when you have the right priorities, everything else falls in place. When you have the wrong priorities, nothing ever works out because you're taking the lesser and you're making them serve, you're taking the greater and you're making the greater serve the lesser when in fact the lesser ought to be serving the greater. Makes sense? You have top priorities, right? And everything in your life ought to serve those top priorities. We are to be exaltational expositors, always exalting the greatness of God, always exalting the goodness of God, always exalting Him. He's the hero of every Bible story. Never make yourself important when teaching or when hearing a teaching. That's not what the Word is supposed to do for us. There will never be a true awakening from God when man is exalted and when man is lifted up, there will never be a true spiritual great awakening. When man is exalted and when man is lifted up, there is never a true move of God of any kind unless God is the one being magnified, God is the one being glorified in our midst. Now, I was planning on showing you a short video here. 
But I want to show you a short video. I will do it. Because I think that this portion in Ezra makes this point clearer than any other I, I, I know. But I want to start off by telling you that we ought never to be critical, right, of any person. But what we need to do is we need to make sure that we go and stand on the right side of the line. Always stand by truth no matter what. Yeah, but they're not going to like me anymore. You see, you're supposed to live for God's glory, not your own, right? It's okay to not be liked. It's okay to not be loved. It's okay to not be accepted. It's okay to be rejected. What's not okay is if you compromise God in order to receive all those other things because now you're living for you and not for Him. See? So I want to show you this. Two men I love. Two men I love. The one speaks to my heart. The other one, no longer. Okay? I love both of them. And so just quickly watch this. See, the cross to me isn't the revelation of my sin. The cross is actually the revealing of my value. People say the cross is a sign of how much man is worth. That's not true. The cross is a sign of how depraved we really are. That it took the death of God's own son. See, we've said that we're worthless and we're worms in the dirt, not realizing that that's what Satan is. Satan's a worm in the dirt and he's worthless. And he's trying to recreate himself in the soul of Christians. Now, this is very, very important. God's motive for saving people is not found in that people. Something underneath of that sin must have been a great value for heaven to go bankrupt to get me back. Mm. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When a holy God looks at sinful men, the only thing their sin motivates God to do is judge them. God does not save us because we deserve to be saved. God saves us because He is a Savior. God does not love us because we deserve to be loved. We do not deserve the love of God. We deserve His wrath. God saves us because He Himself is love. You see, the conclusive point is simply this. We see that Ezra used the Word of God to bless God, to magnify God, to glorify God, to make God great. And when people see just how great God is, guess what happened? They fell on their faces. And the ministers had to come back and say, okay, now remember, this is good news. I know, I know. Well, stop, stop, your, stop crying. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He saves you. And now that becomes your strength. That becomes your joy. Since you now realize that you can't save yourself. But when man is lifted up. And man is. I love that meme I had last week. It said women wondering why she needs Jesus. Because minister took 30 minutes to talk about how amazing she was. It's like. It's like if man is lifted up, it's difficult. Man will clap at that every time, by the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed. They will always clap at that the moment you go, you're great. Oh, man, I knew it. And you'll find it in every video. Search it out. 
search it out. But the opposite is when a washer comes and he says, you've fallen short to the glory of God. He goes, I know, God, thank you. God, thank you for saving me. It's always the response. You can search it out yourself. But the true spiritual awakening happens not here. It happens there. It doesn't happen at elevating man and his worth. It happens at making God great, just like Ezra did here. He preached the law of God and made God great when he taught. And this is my heart. I know you've noticed it. This is my heart. When I teach, I want people to go, God is great. Not, I'm doing pretty okay in comparison. <laughs> Nehemiah 8 verse 6. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, and I'm almost coming to a close. Almost being a key. Uh, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen! Amen! While lifting up their hands... Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra made God great, and immediately people, people's hearts responded with amen. People's hearts responded, and then people's actions were like, I worship you, God. I fall down on my face because I'm humbled by your goodness. You see, they lifted their hands to heaven because they knew this message did not come from man. They knew it came from God. They bowed low because they worship, they worship was toward Him and not toward themselves. You search it out yourself. There's no great awakening and there's no such response when man is elevated. And by the way, when Satan deceived Eve, he did not come, again, with satanic verses. He did not quote from the satanic Bible. He quoted from God. And he misquoted God. And he twisted God's statements in order to deceive Eve. So here... We see that they bowed low because they wor their worship was toward Him, not toward themselves. They lifted their hands to heaven because they were, uh, they were offering themselves to God. They worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground because He was the only one worthy of being seen, not them. You see, the verse reads this way. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord. It was this high theology that they had that drove them to this high doxology, which is a nice word for, I can't stop myself from praising God right now. It was the high theology of God that drove them to this high praise and worship that they had for God. The deeper people go down into the true doctrine of God's word, the higher you will find their praises become. Suddenly, a person is broken and grateful and thankful and compassionate and forgiving. And there's no more bitterness and there's no resentment and there's no sharp edges about them. And what happened? Spiritual awakening. A high theology of God. He's great. And that's how Ezra preached him. The higher Ezra proclaimed God through his law, the lower the people were brought in humility before God. You see, to the point where their hearts were cut their faces were on the ground before God. Nehemiah 8 verse 7. The Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. You see, along with the reading of the Word of God came the explanation and the interpretation of the Word of God. Nehemiah 8 verse 8 says, They read from the book. 
they read from the book, from, from the law of God, translating, in other words, to make it clear, to make it plain, to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And I'm going to close with this. Every spiritual awakening, there's another point, I'm not going to get to it, but every spiritual awakening has always been ushered in by this kind of bold biblical preaching and teaching, teaching with great clarity. I'll go through history with you. This is what took place with Luther, with Huss, with Tyndale, and the rest of them during the Reformation. They were bold. They were studious. They were articulate teachers of the Word of God. They taught about God's greatness, His sovereignty. It's always the number one issue. Since 1517, that's the issue. The sovereignty of God. Is He God or is He not to you? Because even if you say He's not, He still is. But it, it works out bad for you. See, that is what happened during the golden Puritan age. They were simple, articulate, learned preachers of the Word of God. That's what happened during the Great Awakening with John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield. They were bold preachers of the Word of God, holding nothing back, criticized for it throughout their lives. That is what happened during the Victorian age with Charles Spurgeon, with J.C. Ryle. These men were heart-penetrating preachers. They called Charles Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers. And that is what must happen today again. Every spiritual awakening is ushered in by a new generation of preachers who must proclaim the Scriptures. And by a people who shouts, bring us the book. Bring us the book. You see, my prayer is that we at Christ Nation will always cry it out, bring us the Word. We want the Word. Because, you know, sometimes I read the Word and I'm like, ah, I don't get it or I don't like it or it's hard or why, why, God, why? But then... Spend two days in the world and you go like, I need to hear from God. <laughs> I need to rub shoulders with somebody who fears God, who loves the word. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing that's eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word. word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word. You know, the Bible says that it's better for us to attend funerals than it is to attend parties. It brings us to a sober perspective where we go like, you know what, actually... Give me the word. Give me the word because suddenly life just became, I became sober about life. <laughs> Give me the word. I want the word from an Ezra. It is my prayer that we at Christ Nation will always cry out, above all else, give us the word of God. It is my prayer that we at Christ Nation will always be cut to the heart when we see God's holiness and we recognize God's justice. It is my prayer that we here will always, in every way, Exalt the Lord in our lives and not lift ourselves up in any way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father God, I pray that when we open up the word of God, we will be cut to the heart because we will see your greatness. We will see your holiness. We will recognize your justice and we will be reverent. We don't high-five you. You are God. We tremble at your name. Mountains tremble at your name. 
And we recognize that you in your greatness and in your glory stooped down and saved us when we didn't deserve saving. By giving all you had in order to remain just after declaring us righteous, after declaring us innocent. Thank you, God, for being a father who loves that you would even give yourself to save us, your children. Amen.